Good morning, church. Hey, I'm doing well. Hey, happy Easter to you all. Happy Easter. My name is Kendrick, and I'm the pastor here at Calvary Church West Hills, and it is so uh, awesome that we were able to gather today and just worship uh, our Savior, right? Our risen Savior, to, to worship um, Jesus, right? And to celebrate the empty tomb. And if you're a good Southern Baptist, you have to say, He is risen? Risen indeed, right? He is risen indeed. And this is something that we're going to celebrate today. As I told you already, it is a privilege to be able to stand up here and to share and proclaim the name of Jesus, our risen Savior this morning, and I am looking forward to this, right? This is the day that we look back to the morning that the the tomb was empty, that Jesus was risen, and our hope was forever secured, right? It became this thing called certain hope, that without a doubt, we know that that hope is true, and we are going to be talking about that today, and I can't wait, because the the problem with Easter is too often we look at Easter and we see the the risen Savior, we see the empty tomb, and we say, oh, that was for back then. And we just celebrate this like as an anniversary now. But that's not true. That hope is still alive today. Like we can still hold on to that hope. We seem to forget that when Jesus left that grave, he's doing well, right? He is alive and well at this moment. He is still reigning. And as we look around, we see so much meaningless and brokenness in this world we start to think about the hopelessness. We start to get sidetracked from the the hope that Jesus brought when he left that grave. So today we are going to focus on that hope, right? Now more than ever, we need to not only realize, but we need to live in the hope that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is not something that was just for them back then, but it is something that is for us now and today and for the rest of our lives forever. Right? This isn't something where it happened back then and now we just hopelessly wait for him to come again. Right? We are waiting for him to come again, but we have hope. We have certain hope that he will come back again and that we will spend eternity in his glory. And that is a day that I am hopeful for, I am waiting for, and I am excited that I know for certain it will happen. And as the world appears to be falling apart and our lives are getting a little crazy, we start to question that certain hope. We start to question the hope of the resurrection and we start turning to the things of this world to try to fill that hope. We start turning to things of this world to try and find that hope. Ernest Becker in his work, The Denial of Death, claims that humanity has tried to mitigate this feeling of hopelessness in our lives in three ways. One of those ways is religion. Right? There's something that I can do right now that will give me purpose in life. That if I do enough, if I give enough, if I be enough, then I will have hope. Unfortunately, as we try to do those things, what do we quickly find out? We can't do enough. Right? We can't be enough. We can't give enough. And we fall into hopelessness. We fall into despair. Or we're on the other side of that where we start getting some pride in us and say, hey, I'm doing better than that guy, right? I'm doing more than he is, and I'm giving more to him. But what happens in life every time we do that? There's always somebody who does it better, right? There's always somebody that serves better. There's always somebody that gives more. There's always somebody that does more than you. And again, where do we find ourselves? In hopelessness and despair, right? So that's one thing is religion. Another thing is romance, 
right? That if we find the, the love of our life, everything will be better, right? If we find that one person, they will make our life better. That's kind of selfishness, right? It's unrealistic expectation. We're making that relationship about us, and guess where that's going to lead you? Hopelessness, right? My wife, she is a wise and godly woman, and we were talking about this, and I actually quoted her here. She said, good thing you don't, because I don't want that pressure, and I would only fail you if you put your hope in me, right? That is a, that's a wise and godly woman, right? She gets it. She's like, you kind of have weird expectations, so you just go to God and stay away. No, that's not what she said, right? But that's godly wisdom. She knows she's not perfect, right? So we have religion, we have romance. The other thing we have is creativity, Right? That if we can make something that outlasts us in our lives, then we can keep living on forever and ever, like art and architecture, technology, a business, or something like that that goes far past our lives. And that, that works out great, right? Because we'll never forget the guy that designed the first computer. Anybody know who that was? Something you use every day. Who built the Eiffel Tower? Mr. Who? Mr. Eiffel. There's always one, right? There's always one, right? Or, or what about the brainchild behind one of the largest organizations, um, Blockbuster Video, right? Gone now. Okay, so obviously that doesn't work because we're not doing so good here as a church family, right? The creativity doesn't work. But here's the most recent solution. It came up during the, the time of COVID and the lockdowns, and this is called going goblin mode. I had to look this up. And basically, this is the opposite of all those things. This is just giving up on life, right? This is just being completely hopeless. Here's the, de- here's the, the definition for the slang term goblin mode. Behaving in a way that is self-indulgent, lazy, greedy, without caring about social norms or expectations, right? So when you embrace this inner goblin of yours, as they're talking about this, you, you find yourself in your pajamas, Binge watching some series for probably the fourth or fifth time. The, zoo, the Uber driver is back at your house with your food. He's the only person that you've seen in about 14 days. Right? This is the inner goblin. You've just given up on life. Some of you are like, so? <laughs> some of you are like, I'm here right now, aren't I? Right? But if we look at that, that is pretty hopeless. Teenagers, that is hopeless. Don't do that. Right? But that is hopeless. But as some of you who've been with us for several months, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's not that too far off from where we found the author of Ecclesiastes, this preacher, King. Right? He struggled to find hope in things under the sun, and he was just about to give up. He talked about the meaningless of life. Right? That there is no point to life. We are just wasting our time. He talked about the brokenness of life. And he even said, as a king, there is injustices and there is um, prejudice and there are these things going on against my people that my leaders are doing and I can't stop them. This is a, a brokenness that I can't control. And he talked about the certainty of death, right? Life is meaningless. It's painful. There's all this injustice in the world. And then to top it all off, you just die. That's the end of the story. Right? So, so life is meaningless. It's painful. And then you die. 
hey, this is encouragement on the Easter morning, right? And he went on to say, it's this vanity of vanities, right? That's what this preacher always said, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. All is vanity. And he uses this unique Hebrew word, hevel. And it's translated many different ways. It's hard to have a direct translation into English. Depending on the translation of your Bible, you'll see things like vanity. You'll see the word meaningless or futile or pointless. Right? The, the literal translation is like a vapor or a mist. And it's sometimes referred to that, that breath that comes out on a cold morning, that it's there, it's gone, it's useless, it comes, you see it for a second, it disappears, nobody knows anything about it, you don't even remember it. And that's what he is talking about when he says hevel. And he says it's all, it's all meaningless. It's all useless. It's all pointless. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he uses that word as a common response for people that are looking for hope. Right? If you try to find, gain wealth and riches, he says, oh, that's hevel. That's useless. Right? If you try to become influential in your community, you try to be a leader, he's like, nope, that's pointless. Right? That's hevel. Try to create a list a lasting impact on your world. Try to do good deeds. And he's like, nah, life's meaningless, pointless, useless, meaningless, all of that. And we think, well, if I just do this one thing, if I just chase this one thing, my life will be awesome. Everything will be better, right? Like the rich guy said, I just, I just need one more dollar to be happy. And we start chasing these things. And, and anybody who has chased these things, anybody who has put their hopes in these things, you have come to realize that they are meaningless, right? That they ultimately prove out pointless. And they just, leave you, they just lead you to a life of more and more hopelessness. And after a lifetime of study, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, he was coming to that point to determine that everything under the sun, right? everything that we can see, everything that we can observe, everything we can experience, all under the sun is hevel. It is meaningless, if all there is to life is what we can see and chase under the sun, then life truly is not only meaningless, it's hopeless. Right? There's no hope in life. Do, you, do any of you ever feel this hopelessness? Do any of you ever chase after these vapors and these mists and you can't get a hold of them? Right? You've sacrificed so much for your family and you come to this end and you're all alone. Right? You... You were moments away from achieving your dreams. Maybe you built a business. Maybe you had a savings plan. Maybe you had these things for your family and then COVID hit and wiped everything out. And you feel like I'm starting over again. Right? Your, your bank account is full, but you still need more. Hevel, right? It's meaningless. It's, it's worthless. You finally got that promotion or maybe you got that job that you've been striving for for so much of your adult life and you, you get that job and what happens the next day? Man, you want the next position? Well, it is a really nice job I just saw in the, the, the want ads. And you're already looking for something else. And that becomes hevel. And this is the angst that so many of us live with, that so many of us deal with on a regular basis. Every time we think we've gained something or we, we begin to get a little hope that things are going to be better, it seems to go away. It's gone. It's hevel. It's just like a mist. And this happens so much in our lives that we have now become cautious about being hopeful. Right? We become cautious. Like, as soon as I think that something is good, as soon as things start to look good, as soon as I say there's hope for the future, as soon as we start to put our hope in someone or something, 
It's like a mist and a vapor. It's gone. It's, it's heaven. And this hopelessness is all too common in our world and in our communities. And I think if we're really being honest with each other, we see it in our lives on a regular basis. It is this hopelessness that led Paul to write a, a letter to a struggling church in Corinth. And he wanted to remind them that the true and the, the certain hope right, is only found in the resurrection of Jesus. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. But as we read this letter, some things we need to know is that Paul was, was not one of the original disciples. As a matter of fact, Paul spent his early adult life persecuting the disciples, right? Going after people of the church. He spent his life pursuing wealth and education and reputation. But everything changed when he had an encounter with the resurrected Savior. In his own words, this is how Paul described himself. He said, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Everything he had, he gave up to follow Christ. The one true hope he had was Christ. And as we learn, as we read about Paul's life, the, the more we learn is he was probably smarter, he was probably more educated than us, but his life wasn't that different. Right? He was searching for purposes and meaning in life, and he was trying to find hope in life in this sea of hopelessness. He was looking for hope. But Paul's frustration with life and its hopelessness dissipates when he meets the resurrected Savior. Right? It, it goes away. It's like a vapor. His hopelessness disappears when he finds the hope that is found in the resurrection of Jesus. He no longer put his hope in things of this world and things that were meaningless, but he found hope and life in the resurrection of Jesus. So go ahead and have, if you have your Bibles open, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to, oops, turn the page. I'm going to read just a little bit beginning in verse 1. It says, and now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in ways you stand and by w- which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as for the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, as Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still asleep, though some have, sorry, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one um, untimely born, he appeared also to me. And there's just a, a few things before we get into the, the resurrection that we have to look at right here. One, he talks about the gospel, the gospel that I have preached to you in verse 1. And it's in this gospel, and we have talked about this before, that gospel literally means the good news. Right? This is the good news that I have shared with you. It's the good news where Jesus provides meaning, and he restores and repairs things, and he gives life. The gospel is that we are all broken, that we are all sinners, and that we have turn from God to do what was right in our own hearts. We don't deserve a place 
at the foot of our Savior. We don't deserve a place at the foot of the one and true and perfect and holy God. Matter of fact, we deserve the opposite. We deserve, deserve death. We deserve eternal separation. We deserve to be nowhere in His presence forever. But He loved us. And while we were still sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. He sent His Son to pay the debt that we owed. He sent His Son to pay the price that we could not pay. And He did this so that we could be restored in relationship with God. He did this so that we could find a place with God, that we could sit with our Heavenly Father forever at His table and reflect His glory forever and ever and ever. Right? There is no better news in the world. And we talk about the gospel and the good news. That is what we are talking about. And he reminds them of this at the very beginning. And today we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And that celebration, why we celebrate that as Jesus being resurrected proves that his life was sufficient for our sins. And that means that now we can live with certainty that that hope will be fulfilled. That that hope that we have is a certain hope that we will be in the glory of the Father forever and ever and ever. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul actually puts the gospel in its simplest form. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Right? He says, Jesus died. That means He took your place. He became sin so we could become righteous. Right? He was buried. What he's saying here is he He was truly dead. Right? He didn't go to a friend's house. He didn't try to recover. He wasn't just kind of hurt. He wasn't within inches of his life. He was dead. Right? 100% dead. No heart, no life. This is one of these, these heresies that are being taught out there is that Jesus wasn't died. If, if Jesus wasn't died, your sins aren't forgiven. Jesus was dead. 100% dead. And then the resurrection. And unlike every other religious leader, he rose again. And he defeated Satan. He defeated sin. And he defeated death once and for all. Right? That is the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus was resurrected. If you don't know how to share the gospel, just know those three sentences. you got a good starting point. And in verses 5-8, through eight, he gives historical evidence of the resurrection. And this, this is important. This resurrection proves that there's life beyond the sun. There's things that we don't understand. There's things that we don't know. There's things that we don't see. There's a, a world out there that we have no idea about. And there is reasonable evidence for the resurrection. First of all, the tomb was empty. And even non-believers believe this. As a matter of fact, the, the guards who were guarding the tomb said it was empty. Remember, they went to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders said, don't tell anybody. We'll pay you to keep your mouths closed. Right? And they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know how that worked out. They just knew the tomb was empty. Right? There was a large number of people across a diverse set of circumstances that had testified that they had seen Jesus. Right? And why this is important, he gives off names, he gives off places of where you can go see. He says, some are dead, but many are still alive. Right? This letter was probably written 20 or 25 years after the resurrection. And so he gives them names and it's like, you can go check. These are people that have seen them. And why this is important is some people say, oh, when Jesus got together, his, his disciples were tired. They had so much pain that this was just an hallucination that they had. Right? And he said, well, there was the 5,000 people. Well, okay, well, those people also had the same hallucination. Well, what about these people they met with? Well, we don't, we're not sure what happened there. So here Paul says, there's all these people and some of them you can go check with. 
But Jesus walked out of the tomb and people saw him and people talked to him. People ate with him. But here's one of the ones that I find the most interesting is that it was the strangeness of his resurrection. Right? What this means, like, if I was God and I came back, man, there's going to be thunder and lightning and the world is going to know. Right? I'm, gonna, I'm making a show of this. That's not what Jesus did. Right? Jesus didn't come back and throw the Romans. He didn't tell all the Spartans, like, 300, hey, let's gather. I'm going to whoop you all myself. He didn't do any of that. Right? When Jesus came back, what did he do? He went fishing. Right? Had some food with his friends. Walked through a few walls. That's about all. And there's, there's just so much evidence to this resurrection. It demands time for you to investigate. It demands time for you to look at it. The truth is, I don't have the time this morning to look at it, but we put books in the back out there. There's a couple different books. I want you to grab one. They talk about the importance of the resurrection. They talk about the facts behind the resurrection. They give you a, a, a point to see that Jesus was alive. Right? That Jesus is alive. And so if you have the time to read it, great. If not, get it on an uh, audiobook and listen to it. It's very, very important. But let's continue with Paul's letter. If we go, uh, we're in chapter 15. I'm going to pick up in verse 12. And Paul writes this, Now in Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can someone say to you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And if we just look at this, there's something interesting here. In verse 14, we see that same word vain. Right? And that's in the Greek word, but it's the same translation in the Hebrew as hevel. Right? We talk about pointless. Right? So if the resurrection never happened, then this message that Paul is preaching, the message that I, I pray that you hear when you come here on Sunday mornings, right? the, the gospel is meaningless. If there was no resurrection, you are to be pitied because most Sunday mornings you come in here and you sit and you listen to me ramble about something that's just not true. Right? You, you might as well go watch some sci-fi movie. And then we look at verses 14 and 17 and he's talking about their faith and he says, if the resurrection ever happened, then your faith is worthless. Right? You're just wasting your time. Right? He says, it's heavy, it's, worth, it's pointless. And verse 19, if Easter isn't true, Right? If Christ didn't come back from the, the grave, then we as Christians, we are to be pitied more than anybody else. Because we're liars. Right? We are living this life as a lie. And everything under the sun is all that there is. That's all that is true. That means that everything is meaningless and there's no hope of ever finding purpose. Right? If everything under the sun is actually all that there is, then there's no reconciliation ever to happen. There's no hope that we will ever have peace. And if everything under the sun is actually all there is, then guess what? Death does win. There's no hope of life ever. Death wins. 
We are to be pitied because as Christians we are living a lie and our lives are being wasted because all we are doing is we're spending every minute of our day chasing false hopes. And we would make fun of somebody that did that, wouldn't we? No, we wouldn't make fun. We'd be caring towards them and compassionate and loving, right? But we might try to correct them, right? And that's why we are to be pitied. And really what we should be doing is we shouldn't be looking at Jesus. We should be like the rest of the world. We should say, hey, where's the world looking for hope? Right? They're looking at philosophers and therapists. And may- maybe some of you have been there or some of you now are trying to find hope in them and you're looking to them yourselves. Allow me to highlight just a few who may be steering your life today. Sigmund Freud. Right? And he believed that unbridled sexual express- expression makes the most of your time on earth. Whoever hold back sexual expression is a waste of your life. This is, this is the whole meaning of your life, right? Sex is not just a desire. It is the defining mark of your life. Paul actually mentions these people a little bit further down in his letter. He says, if the dead are not raised, right, if there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And some people think that's Shakespeare. That's not Shakespeare. It's Paul, and Paul was actually quoting the prophet Isaiah, And Isaiah was using those words because he was talking about people that have no regard for God. He's talking about people that don't know God and they don't have the lasting hope of eternity in their hearts. So we just eat, drink, we're dead, it's all over. Basically, he's saying that purpose is found in us. And I find this really interesting because about half of college students that are entering college have no idea what they want to do with their life so they don't declare a major. And then I found that 75% of those who do declare a major change their major. And then 27% of people that graduate college actually get a job in the field of their major. Right? We have no idea what we want to do in our professional life. We have no hope of finding purpose in our real life. Right? I remember when I filled out my thing, I was a civil engineer. And then I got accepted to the officer program for the Marines, and I filled out my application. He comes in, he says, hey, you messed something up here. And I said, what? Like I was expecting like something, my address or something. And he said, for major, you put civil engineering. And I said, no, that's what I am. He's like, ah, just put Brie business. Just, just put Brie business so I don't have to change this later. He was right. Graduate HR degree. Right? He knew. Right? So, so if we are trusting ourselves to find purpose in our entire life, we are going to miss the mark. We are going to be hopeless. Right? So Sigmund Freud, wrong. Karl Marx. Right? He believes that our hope is found at the mercy of politics and politicians, that if we could set up this framework, then things would go great, that we move from equality to opportunity of equality for an, of this outcome. Right? And here every answer is a political answer. Every fate problem that we face is all pol- uh, political. Politics will fix corruption. Politics will fix injustice. Politics will fix sexism. Politics will fix racism. It's kind of interesting that it starts with Marxism. It's kind of ironic. Right? And you only have hope in life as long as you have that person or that party in charge that will make things right for you. As long as you got them, you're good. And as we all know, people and parties in politics, they fail us. But we continue to put our hope in them because what we convince ourselves is, well, that person was wrong. But if we put the right person in, then this will fix it out. Right? The, the wrong people were in charge of that party or that group. And if we take those people out and put this person in, then it will all work out perfectly. The truth is, in Ecclesiastes, the king realized that he had all the power in the world. He had all the power over everybody, and he could not fix that. 
And he was in power and said, this doesn't work. I can't do this. I, I don't know why people continue to put their hope of eternity in politics and economic systems. But the only reason I can think of is because it allows us to put the blame of brokenness on something other than ourselves. Right, that we don't have to look at ourselves so we can say that person or those people or that group or that, that's the problem, I'm good. But when the people that are broken are in charge of things, guess what? They're broken. They're broken. Okay, so that doesn't work. What about Frederick Nietzsche? Right, he, he used to say that we escape the hopelessness of death by living as your heart leads you now. Right, he would always say, don't let any religion or institution impose anything on you. Right, don't fear death. The only thing you should fear is missing out on something. Right, you do you. Become whatever you want. Become who, whoever you want. Don't worry about what God's plans for you are. That doesn't matter. You just do what you want. You become who you want to be. And church, we should know this, that us doing that is what led to this mess in the first place. Right, that's sin in our life, saying, oh, I've got the answers, God, hey, this... Just sit down over there, God. Hold my iced tea while I fix these problems. And we just create bigger and bigger and bigger messes. Some of the most scariest words in the Bible are when God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts. Let me read this to you from Romans. Paul was writing this. He says, For those they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he goes on to say this, and Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to their debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. That sounds hopeful. That's what he is saying for people when they chase after their own hearts. This is what happens when we put the hope in ourselves. But here's what I love about the scriptures. We know the scripture is true. So how do those theories, how do those philosophies played out when they are mixed with what scripture says? Well, we know that Sigmund had numerous psychosomatic disorders as well as exaggerated fears of dying. And he had a whole list of phobias. I had to look up what psychosomatic disorders were because I wasn't sure what that was. Um, I hope nobody in here has this. I'm going to try to be condensed. It's more than this. But you're kind of like a hypochondriac. Right? You have all this pain that you're feeling. The doctors can't find it. They don't think there's anything. And now you just get really, really mad at, at doctors because, well, my hand hurts today. Well, now my leg hurts tomorrow. And they can never find anything. Most, not all, but most physicians think it is, not, is a mental order, not a physical disorder. And it leads to great depression and anxiety and fear. We also know that in his life he was surrounded by hopelessness through his family. And much of his later life was spent covering up 
the, the hopelessness in his family that led to several suicides and suicides attempts within his own family. And he didn't want people to think that his theories were debunked. Hopelessness. Marx finished his life in poverty. Twelve people came to his funeral. Right? And political parties which are founded on Marxism, we know throughout history, have become beds for brokenness found in political injustice, in race division, and social caste systems. All these things that he was hoping his theories would get rid of, they are creating. And Nietzsche, he was insane the last ten years of his life. Right? Some, some believe it was his philosophy. Before he went insane, he actually wrote this. He said, all superior men who were irresistibly drawn to throw off the yoke of any kind of morality and to frame new laws, right? So, so anybody who said, hey, none of these institutions, none of these people are going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. He said this, if they were not actually mad, no alternative but to make themselves or pretend to be mad. He's saying that if you do what I'm telling you, you're going to go crazy. He wrote that. Church, if Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb, then all of life is hevel. Right? All of life is pointless and all of life is meaningless. It's just a vapor, a mist. It's, it's no matter to no one. Right? If Jesus didn't walk out of the grave, then hopelessness is really all we have to look forward to. Hopelessness is all we can grab onto. But what if Easter is true? Right? What if Jesus did walk out of the grave? What if Jesus did rise from the dead? Then Christian, those... Who, who are following Jesus, are actually living out their ultimate purpose in life right now. Right? They're living life as they glorify God. Right? As they seek God, as they seek relationship with God. They are living their ultimate purpose in life. Right? If Easter is true, then without question, all injustices will be made right. right? Christ has already prayed for those. And there will be a time when all injustices are made right. And death doesn't win. Right? Jesus defeated death. Death does not get the final word. Jesus wins. I want you to listen to how Paul actually closes this hope as he is speaking to this church in Corinth. If we go down to verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we see that Jesus is called the first fruits. Right? That, that Christ is the first fruits, that he has been raised. And just like the remainder of the harvest, it will also be raised and by faith by those of us who are in Christ by those, those of us that walk with Christ we share in the victory of his defeat of him defeating death and this is a, a promise of the life to come for those who believe in Jesus right we share in his victory all those things that he defeated we are the spoils of war we get to be apart with him and Jesus being our first fruit gives us hope for the life that we live now and for the life that will come Jesus was the first to overcome death, but he won't be the last because death is overcome. It is done. The resurrection changes everything. Through the resurrection, we have purpose. We have healing. We have a, a life that is built on the, the foundations for hope. 
It is in the resurrection of Jesus that our hope is secured. It is that certain hope that we have. And now, as Paul concludes this letter, he writes this, if you go down to verse 53. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, rather than defining ourselves by the hopelessness that is found in this life and in its pleasures, we must cherish the promise. We must cherish the hope that comes as we share in Christ's glory, as we share in His resurrection. We must embrace the hope of the resurrection as a source of power by, by which we may endure the brokenness of this world. That is the, the power that comes through the resurrection, the power of reconciliation that we must celebrate, that we must use as our source in this world right now. And because of the resurrection, we can celebrate the victory that God has given us through Christ. We can celebrate that victory now. We can live in that victory now. We can be a part of that victory now. Because we know that that is our certain hope for all of eternity. No matter what happens to us now, no matter what we face now, we know because of the resurrection, we have a certain hope to be in the glory of God for all of eternity. The gospel is the answer to hopelessness and gives us purpose to our daily endeavors. We know that when we are chasing the gospel, we know that when we are chasing uh, 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 Jesus, that our labor is not in vain, that our work is not in vain, that we are doing everything we can for the glory of God. It is not in vain. In Ecclesiastes, he was actually right. Right? That life is meaningless, broken. It's headed for certain death. It is completely hopeless. If all there is, is what is found under the sun. But Easter proved that there is more than we know. There is more than we see. There is more than we experience than what we just see under the sun. There, there is. This is what it tells us. Is there is a God in heaven who loves you. We know that from the resurrection there is a God in heaven who loves you enough to send His Son to die for you, to pay for your sins so that He could be in right relationship with you. And it is on Easter when the tomb was empty that He gave us that hope that we can hold on to through the resurrection of Jesus. It is through the resurrection of Jesus that we have hope and purpose in our life. It is through the the resurrection of Jesus that we have hope that all injustices will one day be made right and all broken relationships, not just with the Father, but with each other, will all be restored. You have hope that death is not the end, but life with Christ for all of eternity is your future. That is our hope. That is real hope. Anything that this world has to offer goes away. But hope with Jesus for all of eternity is a certain hope that we can hold on to. You can bet your life on it. And we follow Jesus from death to life and we leave the grave of meaningless, right? We leave the grave of brokenness and death and we put our faith in Jesus. Our, our life won't be hevel, 
right? Our life won't be meaningless. Our life won't be pointless. Our, our life won't be worthless. Our life won't be useless. But when we follow Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, our life moves from hevel to hopeful. And as a Christian, that is where you find hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this time that we get to come together and celebrate the day that the tomb was empty. Lord, we are so grateful that we can look into that tomb and while we don't see a dead body, all we can see is hope. Lord, we are so grateful for that hope in our life. Lord, I, Lord, I would pray that if, if people are still chasing the hopelessness of this world, that you would just grab a heart, that you would turn them to you, that they would experience that hope. If there's somebody in here, Lord, that you would just give them the courage to set aside the things of this world and put their faith in you, the one true hope, the one true life giver, the one true person, God, who loves us. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we are so, so grateful that we get to celebrate this day of when the tomb was empty. And we ask, we, we proclaim these things in the powerful name of your Son and in the risen name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen.